Awesome. Thank you, choir. So um, I just want to make mention as we move forward that I'm looking at beginning a brand new series, kind of considering a possibility starting uh, right after Labor Day. Until then, just looking at some things that, that uh, I feel are, are worth our attention, so to speak. And so um, today is a message that just stands alone. Uh, it's not part of a series. We're going to be looking through a lot of different passages of Scripture in the New Testament. I understand when we do that, not everybody can always keep up. And uh, so we've got, we'll have the passages on the screen back behind me. But also I do want to give a quick little plug as well for our church app because that makes it super easy to follow along the passages as well. If you haven't um, loaded that and begun to use that yet, I really, really encourage it. So looking at a message today that's standalone, but one that hopefully God will really use in your life as well. So to me, language is one of those things that is just fascinating. Uh, I, I remember taking Spanish when I was in high school. Uh, my, I think it was my junior year, my senior year. And uh, I wasn't really super good at it. Uh, they gave us each names in the class. I was Pedro, and so for two years I was Pedro Kale, I guess, and, uh, and, and so I just kind of made it through the best I could. But since I've gotten older, and especially since we've gone to Cuba numerous times as part of our missions emphasis, um, it's just reminded me of how much of that Spanish I actually did remember, but it also reminded me of how fascinating the whole concept of language really is. My first mission trip that I went on in 1995, I went to Hungary, and to my recollection, I had never even been out of the country uh, at all, and that was my first trip. I went with a church in the Atlanta area, and uh, I went there for a week. Uh, we served in a in a little in, in a camp there. It was a Word of Life ministry camp in Hungary. It was a Christian camp, and they brought kids in from all over the country over various weeks through that year or through that summer. And the team that I was on, we taught English. That was our responsibility. But again, it's a Christian camp, so our texts that we used were Bible stories. And so we would develop relationships with the kids and try to have impact and influence in their lives. And I remember one specific night we were in the the room, kind of the bunk room, with myself and the other uh, the, the the Hungarian. Uh, men that led that group and then the boys that were part of that camp. And I remember we closed in prayer one night and uh, you could hear these kids praying in their language and I couldn't understand a word except amen at the end. And yet there was just this, this sense of of unity and commonality in our faith that crossed the language barrier, right, that was just incredibly powerful. And, and, and really for years, I've just been fascinated by languages. And it's just, it, it, I don't know if, if you're the same way or not. Maybe you can't quite relate to this. But to me, it's just fascinating, the whole concept of language. And to think about, you know, little kids, when they begin to speak, you know, from nine months to a year, two years, honestly, they're developing that language here in our own country. They're learning English, and they're learning it rapidly. They're adding large number of vocabulary words to their vocabulary as two-year-olds, right? They're learning this language from scratch, basically. And yet, you take the rest of us, and if you were to drop us into trying to learn a new language, we couldn't learn 10 words in a year, right? It's such a struggle for us. Language is one of those things that it's so easy to embrace for a child, and yet so difficult at the same time as well. And what often happens is, is that when we think about language, uh, many times we get ourselves into trouble. We, we create confusion or misunderstanding simply by the words that we use. And so words matter. Words are important. So I did a little research preparing for this message today, and I came across some things that I thought were just kind of uh, interesting. What do you think the most difficult language to learn is? Think in your mind for just a second. What language do you think is the most difficult to learn? That would be Mandarin Chinese, right? So uh, I saw one fist pump. Yeah, that's good. You got that one right. So uh, which would, would you feel would have the most words of any language? That would be 
English. In fact, I didn't know this, but about a thousand words are being added to our English language, functionally used English words added to our language every single year. Over 300 languages are spoken right here in our own nation, right? In the U.S. alone, over 300 languages uh, um, help to make up kind of the language base in our own country. And, uh, and then when you think about what is the most um, translated document in all the world, think about where you're sitting, that would be the Bible. And so even in Scripture, when you look at the Bible, we have to remember that the Bible is a written document. It was written in original language. Old Testament was Hebrew, uh, the New Testament, Greek. You've got some Aramaic that is scattered around there, but predominantly Hebrew and Greek. It was written uh, thousands of years ago, 2000 for the New Testament, even further back for the majority of the Old Testament. And, and when you look at the Bible itself, it is a compilation of words, about 780,000 words in the translation I use, which is the New American Standard. So could we just say, for the sake of simplicity, upwards of a million words comprise the 66 books of the Bible. And when you look at those words, most of them are easy to understand. If you're reading in a language that's easy to understand, I will get lost in the King James. It's just very difficult for me to read it. But if you read another more modern translation, most of those words we can understand. But even there, there are still some passages and there are some words that are used that can be a little difficult for us to be able to navigate. And in the same as in human language, as we read the Bible, if we don't understand, if we have a lack of clarity, sometimes that can lead us down a path that we didn't see coming. Think about how many times you've gotten sideways in a relationship with a spouse, with a child, with a friend, with a coworker because of something that was said that was misunderstood, right? It all goes back to the fact that words matter. And even when we read in Scripture, sometimes we'll come across certain words that we misunderstand or we misapply. It leads to confusion, and ultimately, it brings us to a place that we didn't really see coming. What I want to do today is I want to focus on one specific word in the English translation of the Bible that you hold. And it's probably not the word you're thinking, right? You're thinking, all right, here we are. This is, a, this is a message. We're in church. I bet he's going to talk about the cross, or he's going to talk about atonement, or justification, or reconciliation, or forgiveness, right? It's probably not a word you're thinking about. And yet when I roll this word out, what we're going to see are three different uses of this one English word throughout the pages of the New Testament specifically. It's all throughout the Bible, but primarily New Testament is where we're going to focus with some Old Testament. But every use of these three uses of this one English word, it's used distinctly differently in these three places, right, in these three ways. And each one of those uses carries a very specific response from you and from me, okay? So a little different message this morning, but the word we're going to focus on is the word world, W-O-R-L-D. My teacher would be proud of me, world. Whenever you look in Scripture, in the New Testament especially, but again, parts of the old and the new, that word world has three primary uses in the Bible. Don't let me lose you here. We're going to sift through all three of these and look at the response from us that needs to go along with it. One use of the word world is just like you would think. It's the reference to the physical earth, the physical universe that we see around us, right? It's that, that's how it's often used in one way is to refer to, to what we see as the earth and the universe. A second way that the word world is used in the Bible is to refer to the people that inhabit that earth uh, within this universe, right? It's the people. It's world as 
as, as earth and universe, it's world as people. And then the third use is using the word world to refer to a system of belief that excludes God, that is opposed to him, his will, his ways, and his truth. One word, the English word world, used in three distinctly different ways Each of those three ways requires a response from us that is probably more important than maybe you've ever really thought about or considered. And so let's move through them one at a time. The first is, let's look at the first use of that word world as physical, right? Again, referencing the the earth we live on and the universe in which in which we live. That's one of the more probably easily understood, understood uses of the word world. So let's, let's move through a few passages of Scripture. Look over in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to start. Again, I'm going to be tossing out quite a few passages of Scripture. Just keep up best you can, but they're all going to be on the screen back behind me. Acts chapter 17, we find here a reference in the New Testament where uh, Luke is writing, and uh, he's capturing something that Paul, the Apostle Paul, says here in Acts chapter 17, referencing the world as a physical place. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul is speaking. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So there's something to establish there. When we think about the world as a physical place, again, that's not a shocker. You do the same thing, right? Talk about people who've traveled around the world. You're talking about a physical place. What I want us to remind ourselves of, however, is what the Bible says here and elsewhere, and it's a statement that Paul makes that this earth, this physical world that we speak of, was made specifically by God himself. Verse 24, the God who made the world, and then it goes on to say that since he made it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. Not only did he create it and make it, but it also, by virtue of belonging to him, falls under his authority. It is his. Now, back in the day, decades ago, if you were to speak to an atheist or read an article written by an atheist as it would speak to our physical world, they would have typically propagated the notion that the the world as we know it physically, that the universe would have been eternal. This is going back decades. Most every atheist would have propagated that, that the universe was eternal. However, in recent decades, virtually every atheist would agree that the earth is not eternal, that it has a beginning point. And we don't have time to go into what that evidence is, but without ever using the Bible, there is overwhelming evidence that the universe as we know it had a beginning point. Now, for the atheist who excludes God, they're going to have their own little system of belief as to how that began, really with evolution, and even that they have a hard time explaining because, again, there's no evidence to that. However, when you read in Scripture what God's Word tells us and what the evidence points to is that the universe had a beginning, and if it had a beginning, it had to have a beginner. And we find here in Acts 17, one of many places, that the beginner is an eternal God who reveals himself in Scripture, who made the world and stands as Lord over all of it. You go over towards, towards the close of the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, right? The writer of Hebrews is just saying, hey, you remember back in the Old Testament when God spoke through the prophets? He says, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, that's through Jesus, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So we find in Hebrews, and then we would also find as well in Colossians, that it's Jesus who is ascribed as the creator. Jesus God himself. And so very clearly, we're going somewhere with this. When we think about that use of the world in a physical sense, that when the Bible speaks of the world as earth, as planets, as trees, as dirt, as seas, as land, all those things, right, they fall under the category of the lordship of God because he is the creator. Now remember what I said was at the beginning, we're going to look at three different uses of the word world. Each one of them carries a response. Here's the response. You'll see it on the screen behind me. That since God is the one who created the physical world, we then, our response is, and the command to us, is that we be good stewards of it. And that word steward is just a fancy word for a manager. We're keepers. So let's just assume, for the sake of argument, let's just say that, that I built a car. Anybody who knows me knows that's a gigantic miracle if that were to ever take place. You give me a, a model with instructions, and I'm probably not going to build that car. But let's just assume for a second, let's take a big leap, that I built a car. And it belongs to me. I made it. It is under my possession. However, I choose to place that car in your hands and to give you use of it for the next year. It would go without saying. It would not even need to be explained. And honestly, you would not even have to sign anything. That the expectation and the responsibility that goes with that is that because the car belongs to me, because I made it, and because it is mine, you then carry a responsibility to care for it. You're not going to gun it every time you pull out into an intersection. You're not going to go out there and just crash it you know, nonchalantly into something and you just treat it like it's worthless, right? That's not going to be the expectation, right? If you care about me, if you care about our friendship, then you're going to manage what was placed in your care because it doesn't belong to you. That's exactly what we see here when we we refer to the world that God made it, he created it, he's Lord over it, and yet he has placed us in it to enjoy. And along with that goes the responsibility and even the command to also care for it. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. What we find here is that God is giving explicit instruction to Adam, and really to a large degree to Adam and Eve, to care for as stewards of the world that he created. Look at what it says in Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Look at the words that are highlighted there, right? They're action words. He tells them that as they live in the world that he created, and they would have understood having been created themselves, that they didn't bring all this into existence, that they were living in somebody else's world. He says, you need to fill it, you need to subdue it, you need to rule over it. You have a responsibility as stewards and as managers to take care of this world. You move over one chapter, chapter 2, verse 15. Speaking of Adam, it says, the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden, the Garden of Eden, to cultivate it and to keep it. Two more action words, cultivate and keep. God says, fill it. God says, subdue it. God says, rule over it. God says to Adam, uh, uh, he says, cultivate it. He says, keep it, right? You have a responsibility, he says, to manage and to be a good steward of the world that I've created. That's the perspective that God has. Now, unfortunately, remember, words matter. Unfortunately, when we look at this context of what the world is, that God created it, he's Lord over it, that we have a responsibility to care for it, 
what often happens is a misunderstanding to where we navigate to one of two extremes. One extreme, there are people who begin to worship the world, the creation. It may be an animist who lives in some remote region and they're worshiping the trees or they're worshiping the rocks or they're worshiping some other part of creation. Or it may be somebody who worships it in a more subtle way, such as maybe we would if we're not careful. Placing it on a pedestal as though it reigns supreme over everything. That's one extreme. The other extreme, and often, would be to try to swing away from that. We swing too far in the other direction to the point to where we don't care for it at all. Now, let me just listen. This is not a political statement, but there are political overtones that come into this that lead to a mismanagement of the world that God has made. Sometimes we hear words like global warming and climate change, and we think, oh no, I know who that's associated with, and I'm not going that way, and we try to swing so far away from being put into that camp that we don't do anything to be a good manager of the world that God has created. Both are equally dangerous. Worshiping it or being a poor steward and actually doing damage to the world that doesn't belong to us, but belongs to the God who created us and put us in it with a very specific command to be a good steward of it. David would write 3,000 years ago in Psalm chapter 19 a couple of powerful segments of two different psalms that speak to the world as the physical world that God has made. He says in Psalm 19, these first six verses, he says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In other words, what David is saying there is you can walk outside as you will in the next 45 minutes, 30 minutes, however long it is, you will walk outside of this space, outside from these walls and this roof, and you will look up and you will see a sun and you will feel its heat and you will feel it's the humidity of this environment, right? And you will see the clouds and you will hear birds and you will see trees and all these things. And what happens is we become so accustomed to that that we don't put two and two together and we forget that those are all visual exhibit A images that there is in existence a God who is eternal who created all of that to start with. And half a world away in a remote jungle of a distant country or a distant continent, there is someone looking up at a night sky at the same time you're looking up at a day sky and they're seeing the moon and the stars and the distant planets and they're hearing the noises of the jungle and they are also reminded of the fact that that is exhibit A, that there is a creator in existence to whom we are accountable in how we manage and navigate and handle his world. David says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words, right? They don't speak. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Their utterance is to the end of the world. 
In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. You go back to Psalm chapter 8, where David writes this, and it only makes sense in verse 3 and 4 in Psalm 8. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? him. David is just blown away. And he's saying so powerful is this testimony. Theologians call it general revelation. It's not enough for a person to be saved. You still got to come through Jesus. But there is ample evidence through the physical world that God has created to go outside and to look and to see and to know there is a creator because anything with a beginning has a beginner. And God says it's that world, that physical world that I made, that I'm Lord over, that I put you in, that bears evidence of who I am, that you're commanded to take care of. And we have to figure out what that looks like. That's the first use of the word world. We are managers. The response is that we are to manage it and to steward it well. There's a second use of the word world we find in Scripture that refers not to specifically the physical universe that God has made, but to the people who form the world, the humanity of the world. There's a response there, and the response is this, that since God created the human world, remember he made the physical one, the response is we have to steward it and manage it, but since God created the human world, then we are commanded and there is a responsibility to reach it with the message of the gospel. He made the physical world, we need to we need to steward it. He made the human world. We have to reach it with a message of the gospel. World refers to not just the physical, but also the people, the humanity of it. It's interesting in John chapter 1, verse 10, we actually see these first two uses in the same verse for the most part. John chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, John is speaking here of Jesus. It says he, Jesus, was in the world, right? He was in the physical world. He walked this earth. And the world, the physical world, was made through him. And the world, the people of the world, did not know him. People miss Jesus for who he was. There's a picture there, and we don't have to get to the New Testament to see it. We see it already in Genesis, beginning in chapter 3. In Genesis, the, the third chapter of the whole entire Bible, we begin to see that when you think of the humanity of the world that God has made, the humanity of the world is separated from God, right? We're not born Christians. We're not born okay with God. We're not born in a relationship with him. We're not born with a ticket stamp to get us into heaven. We are born separated from God, enemies of God. Ephesians 2 says we are dead on the inside because of our trespasses and our sins. When you think of the humanity, that's the picture of it. John, or, or Jesus, came into that world, came in and walked amongst humanity, and yet it says there in verse 10 that the world, the people, did not know him. By and large, the people missed him for who he was. Verse 11 says he came to his own. He came to the Jews, and those who were his own didn't even receive him. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. He's not talking about the physical rocks and dirt. He's talking about the people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. It shows a little bit of the heart of God for this aspect of the world, that God loves the world. He desires for the world to have a relationship with him. You go over to John chapter 8 a little bit further and you look in the words of Jesus. What does it say? <clears throat> in Jesus' own words, in his own perspective, John 8 verse 12, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He's not saying, I'm the sunshine. He's not, saying, he's not speaking like a 
pantheist here. He's saying, I am the light. I'm the one who shines light into the darkness of sin. I'm the one who is the salvation. I'm God who's come. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You put all this together, and you begin to see this picture that the world is in darkness, the, the humanity of the world. The world needs a Savior. Jesus came as that Savior. He is the light of the world. Mark chapter 16, verse 15, goes even a little bit further to where it begins to bring us into the mix. The very last chapter in the book of Mark, it gives us what we find elsewhere in the Gospels, this mandate, this commission, Mark 16, verse 15. He says, he who has, or he says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I told you we're going to look at a lot of verses, right? I warned you. Your, your Bible's on fire probably by now, all right? Flipping through there so fast. Matthew chapter 28, 18. Jesus came up, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It was a conference called the Lausanne Conference, 1974. Two missiologists were there, Winters and McGavern. They would understand something out of that passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 28, when it says, go into all the nations. It's a Greek phrase, pantata ethne, where they would un- unveil kind of the understanding that when it says in our English language to go into all the nations, it's not talking about lines on a map. It's talking about ethnic groups, language groups, people groups. They would identify in 1974 as 16,000 in existence. I'm sure that number now with technology has grown. There's one language group when I was doing this research and I gave you some of those interesting stats at the beginning. One of the things I didn't mention was that there is actually uh, a language that is in existence that's actually only spoken at one time by eight people. Language groups. You as a church help support a family, Matthew, Rachel Woods, and their three kids who live right now in Papua New Guinea, working for a ministry called Wycliffe Bible Translators. When you put money in an offering plate, a percentage of that goes to help keep them on the field, doing what God's called them to do, to translate the Bible into the heart language of the people of Papua New Guinea so they can read God's word in a language that they understand as their own. Right? Pantatayethne, all the nations. That's who Jesus sent us to. Here in our own country alone, 300 different languages that are spoken. You probably work with people whose heart language is one other than English. You probably go to school with people whose heart language is one other than English. You have people in your neighborhood who live across the street, who live next door, maybe even in your family. Those are the ones Jesus has sent us to. Why? Because God loves the world. He created the physical world, he created the human world, and he loves it so much that he died for it. You know, when we look at the responsibility that we carry for us as Christians living in this country, a land of blessing, there is a real tendency to try to enjoy our time on this planet as best we can without giving due acknowledgement of the fact that there are people around us as we work our jobs and do the things we enjoy, there are people around us who do not have a relationship with the God who created them. 
God loves them so much that he chose to respond by sending us into that world. And it does not matter whether they are someone who lives in a house or whether they are homeless, God loves them equally. It does not matter the color of their skin. It does not matter the language of, their, uh, uh, of, of origin that they speak. It does not matter the land in which they were born. It does not matter what school their kids go to. It does not matter whether they are driving the car sitting at the intersection or standing in that intersection 10 feet away with a sign that says, we'll work for food. God loves equally. It does not matter who they voted for. It does not matter how much money is in their pocket. It does not matter where they went on vacation or whether or not they can even afford to take one. God loves them equally, and he loves them so much that he came and that he died. And if he ultimately created those folks who inhabit this world and loves the people of that world and paid for the sins of the people of that world, and if Jesus says, I am the light of that world, and then he tells us to go into all the world, then what that tells us is we as believers and followers have to ultimately prioritize obedience to the call to go and take the gospel to the nation starting right here close to home. And there, there, there's no other way. I mean, I, one of the things I love the Bible is it's very logical. And there's really no other way. I mean, if all this is true, if he made them and if he loves them and if he came and died for them and rose again and, and, and ultimately is the light for them, and he's already done that work in our lives because we, he, we needed him equally. And if he sends us to him, th then the only response, it's the only response on the table outside of disobedience is to take the gospel to him. To fund it, to propagate it, and to share it. And to demonstrate it in our lives with love. So one use of the word world is physical. We're called to be good stewards. Second use of the word world is the people, the humanity. We're called to reach them with the gospel. And the final use of the word world is that system of belief, the motivation of the heart, the bullseye that people aim for that excludes God and that ultimately stands opposed to him and his work and his will and his ways and his truth. And you know it, you see it every day, right? You live, and I live in the middle of it. You work in it, you go to school in it, you shop in it, you experience entertainment in the midst of it. It's that world that has no room for God. It's the third use of the word world. It's humanistic, it's materialistic, it's atheistic in many ways, and it's self-centered to the core. Romans chapter 12 Paul is writing to the Christians in the big city, right? He's writing to the, to the Christians in Rome. And in Romans chapter 12, he gives them a command, almost like a, a loving word of advice from a father to a son. He says in Romans 12 verse 1, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship here it is and do not be conformed to this world that's what he's talking about he's saying don't be squeezed into the mold of this worldview this system this spiritual system that has no room for God in it don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the final principle. Since, God, since the world system opposes God, our response ultimately is that we have to resist it. 
That's what Romans 12 is saying. Don't be squeezed into its mold. Don't, don't, don't be conformed into the image of this world. Don't live in such a way to where when people see you as a Christian, they can't see Jesus at all because all they see is the pursuit of self and the, acclama- uh, the, the, uh, the uh, uh, um, projection of self, and, and all they see is you and not him. Don't be that person is what he says. Now, James goes a little bit further. James, the half-brother of Jesus, often hit between the eyes. This is what he says in James 4, verse 4, speaking of that world. He says, you adulteresses. Boy, he starts in a way that makes a lot of friends, doesn't he? You adulteresses, this is like spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. (laughs) I mean, you can't cut to the chase more than that. James says, you can't do both. Christian, you're not able to do both. And I'm not talking about living in the physical world, and I'm not even talking about loving the humanity of the world. I'm talking about that system of belief that will do everything it can to get its claws into you and turn you into a greedy, covenant, or or a covetous, uh, self-absorbed, lover of everything ungodly. It's that system. He says, you've got to resist it. You cannot be a friend with it. And if you are, it makes you an enemy of God himself. It's movies like The Sound of Freedom, right? The put on the front page, human trafficking, sexual tra- sex trafficking especially, right? It's this microcosm of a world that will take someone that God has created in his own image that he loved enough to come for and die for, it will be, it's this picture of those that will take that precious life made in the image of God and will use it in every horrendous way to get everything that it can, kick it to the curb like a rag doll, and move on as they jet set around the world doing that day after day after day. That's the world. James says, don't you dare go there. And it doesn't have to be that horrendous. Listen. When we become about everything that God is opposed to, whether it's that or something else, I'm telling you, it's going to have an impact. John, the former disciple of Jesus, whom God had changed his heart through the years by the time he writes the letter of 1 John, he would write in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, he says, Do not love the world. Sounds confusing, doesn't it, right? Words matter. Remember, three different uses. It sounds like he's saying, wait wait a minute, I thought Jesus died for the world. I thought he was the light of the world. I thought it said God so loved the world. Why is he telling me not to love the world? Different type of world. Do not love that system of belief that opposes God and his word and his will and his ways and his truth and even he himself. Do not love that world nor the things in that world. If anyone loves that world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in that world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Three uses, the world as a physical place created by God. He stands as Lord over it. He says, I put you in it as a blessing. Manage it and steward it well. A second use are the people for whom Jesus died, the people who dot the landscape of this planet on which we live, you and I included He loved him so much he died and he rose. Thankfully, we were part of that number as well. He says, be sure you do what you can to get them the gospel because they need it. Way over there and right across your back fence as well. And then he says there's another world. 
that you know too well because you live in it every day. And it will do everything it can to get its hooks into you, whether on a high school campus, a lower school campus in your neighborhood, on a college campus, in your workplace, through your, through your device screens, whatever it may be. It will do everything it can to try to get its hooks in you and pull you away from who God is and who he wants you to be. And so do everything you can to resist it. It's what makes this so important, right? This time of worship. Because in the midst of this time that we gather together, we find strength in numbers, and we find encouragement, and we find correction. We pull ourselves out of a mix like this. We put ourselves in a very dangerous place. It's here that we're reminded of who reigns, and it's not us. It's God. We get to sing to him, and we get to read the word that he wrote, and we get to decide whether we're going to live by it. Hopefully, yes, we will. And it's also here that we're equipped and we're reminded that the world out there is not of him. That he's got something better in here where he reigns. And even out there beyond this life, there's a world that we can't even conceive that he has waiting for us. Jesus would gather with his disciples soon before he would be betrayed and crucified and would rise again. John 17, he's praying perhaps the most intimate prayer that he would pray with his followers. It's called the high priestly prayer, John 17, and I want to close with just a portion of that because in a way we see all three uses of the world in this one passage of Scripture. John chapter 17, let's start in verse 11. I'm not sure if we have that one on the screen or not, but verse 11, he says, I am no more in the world and yet they themselves are in the world. He's praying to the Father. Speaking of his followers, they are still in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Look down in verse 14. He says, speaking of his followers, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. That system of belief where God doesn't fit has hated them because they are not of that world. They're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you, he says to the Father, to take them out of the world. Don't take them out of this physical place you've created, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. They have a different Lord, is like what he's saying. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you have sent me into the world, the people that you've created who are walking in darkness, I also have sent them into the world. God has us in this place that he created for a reason, so we manage it well. He's put us in the midst of people who don't know him, who are lost in sin. And as Katie said earlier, hell is the destination unless they find a relationship with Jesus soon. He's given us the command and the responsibility to get them the message of the gospel and to live in a way that doesn't confuse the message, but that reinforces the message. And then ultimately, the way we do that is by living a life separate from the world that's opposed to him so that we can be wholly presented to him, sold out like we started this service in with the song that we sang so that others can see him in the lives that we live. Let me just say as I close that if we miss it on number three and we live like the world, we won't care about the people in number two, right? The ones that are lost and dying without him. And more than likely, we're going to just take for granted number one, the world where he's placed us. It all fits. And so we live a life surrendered to the Lord of all who reigns over the place we live, who has a home waiting for us, who sends us to the ones that don't yet know him. 
while living the only life that Jesus promised, a life of abundance. I've come to give you life and to give it more abundantly, and it only comes when we distance ourselves from that world and live a life surrendered to him. Christian, it's not easy. You need each other. We need each other. And we can't navigate away from his word for even a moment. And yet, praise the Lord, he honors obedience in the lives of his people. So follow him. If you don't know him, hey, this world doesn't hold anything that you need. Life is only found through Jesus. And right where you sit today, you can say, Jesus, would you forgive my sin that you've already died and rose for? And would you take over my life and save me? And he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, first of all, your word that you give us. Lord, that speaks and testifies of who you are, of who we are of what you desire of us, what we need in salvation and how to live a life that honors you and how to introduce others to you as well. Lord, today we've just looked at one word with three very distinct responses from us to care for the world that you've made because it's not ours. To love the people that bear your image in this world as we move about day to day. We're surrounded by people who don't know you. And Lord, you call us to love them to love our neighbor as ourself. And we pray for boldness, God, that we would not only see them the way you do, but that we would also love them with your love, God, to the point to where we want to introduce them in love and kindness to you, the God who created them and who can save them. And yet, God, we know all the while it's an uphill battle because this world, the system of belief that has no room for you, constantly calls And it constantly tries to reach out and grasp us, to pull us under and to pull us away. Lord, we know that we can never lose our salvation. But God, I know that we can live in a way that where it doesn't seem real anymore if we wander from who you are. And so God, protect us, we pray. Such a powerful prayer you pray, Jesus, to protect your own. For the Father to protect those who are still in this world, that we're in it, but we're not of it, yet we're sent to it. And we can only do that with you and us. So God, help us to walk with you daily, to walk in your power, to walk in deep relationship, to enjoy you for who you are, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Lord, may we we have a, a, a burning passion, a burden to get you to the nations, which seems to be a lot closer than it used to be. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.